When we talk about creating a better experience, a lot of what we're doing is trying to architect the experience so that we maximize the positive emotions. Welcome to the Marketing Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. Join your host, Dots Oyobulu, as he learns from CMOs, agency leaders, and business leaders about the state of performance marketing, plus insights on strategies, campaigns, and intelligence for commercial impact. Connect the dots and enjoy the latest episode. This episode is brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. If you're a business needing content promotion, podcast campaign production, or are looking to build effective B2B marketing strategies, Dots is here to offer you ultimate marketing leadership and expertise. Find out more at www.dotslovesmarketing.com. Hi, marketers. This is Dots, and welcome to the Marketing Leadership Podcast. With me here is Howard Tierski, CEO at From, the Digital Transformation Agency. Howard is widely regarded as one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers in the world and is the author of Wall Street Journal's bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. We will be talking about how digital mature brands run profitable marketing campaigns. I know you guys are ready, so let's get in. Howard, it's an honor to have you on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Dots. So happy to be here. Absolutely. We'd like to start first by you telling us a bit about yourself, your background, your role, and how you came to become one of the 10 leading digital transformation specialists in the world, which is awesome. Whether I am or not, I'll leave that to others to judge. I've had the tremendous opportunity in my career to work with scores of Fortune 1000 brands on what today we call digital transformation. I was a kid in my early 20s working for Ernst & Young Consulting in a space that at the time we used to call new media, doing things like CD-ROMs and kiosks and things like that. It was a little kind of side area, nothing that was considered to be highly strategic. And that's around when we're talking about maybe, I don't know, 1995, something like that. The internet started to go from being something that was really just for academics and the military to be something that had commercial potential. And frankly, they just looked around and said, who do we have at this company that knows anything about creating graphics on a screen with interactivity? <laughs> and they said, that guy does. The next thing you knew, I was being brought to major corporations to talk to senior level people about the internet and its potential. And in the early days, I had to persuade people, why would a large company even want to have a site on the internet? Why is that relevant to that? That long ago, of course, today, that sounds like a ridiculous question, but everything starts out as something new. And people ask, why would I want that? Maybe today it's the metaverse. Why would we want to be in the metaverse? Why would we want blockchain? Back then, that's how this stuff was perceived. It was perceived as leading, risky, unclear. Maybe it was a fad, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, then I just had the opportunity to work with company after company, General Electric, General Motors, Pacific Gas and Electric, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, and on and on. And that's one of the great benefits you get from working with a, a giant global company like Ernst & Young. And at one point, the consulting practice that I was in at Ernst & Young got sold to another big consulting firm, which is Capgemini. So I wound up working for a different company. And in all, I did that for 15 years working there. And yeah, just for lots and lots of big companies. And even though what we were working on initially was much simpler stuff, because when we first started, you couldn't even do e-commerce. Uh, and then, of course, we had the wave of e-commerce. And of course, it's gone from being a minor marketing channel back in the 90s to something today, which if a company hasn't really mastered digital, they're probably not going to be in business very long. It's a huge shift in terms of the relevance of this type of work. And I just had the good fortune of happening to be in it at a time when it became so important. Coincidentally, I spent about 15 years there. And then I started my own company in 2008, and then it's been 15 years since then, so about the same amount of time. And my company, which today is called From the Digital Transformation Agency, does very much the same type of work I was doing back then, with the exception, of course, that times have changed and technology has changed. So we weren't initially creating mobile apps and thinking about artificial intelligence and all that. It was much simpler. But as technology has evolved, as devices and customer expectations have continued to evolve, We've continued to evolve the work that we do, but the fundamental question we're trying to answer is the same, which is how can we create digital experiences that enable both your customers to better engage and your workforce 
whether those are your employees or other parts of your extended ecosystem to enable your business to operate more efficiently, more effectively, and ultimately create more value for the customer. And that's it. That's what I've been doing. So how did I become one of the top 10 in the world? Again, I don't know if I'm really one of the top 10 because I know an awful lot of smart people, but how I became very experienced in this is just doing it a lot. It's just that. You do the same thing for 25 years, I bet you become really good at it. You're right. And speaking of good fortune, you've had a good fortune of being, in terms of leadership here, one of the most hands-on digital transformation leaders I have ever met. For a second, and it may be your accent, I thought you said one of the most handsome. And then I realized you said hands-on, hands on. and I was very disappointed. Uh, but okay, go on. <laughs> no, 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 it's, well, you are handsome for your age. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. The moment is past. Dots, the moment is past. Keep going. I've been in marketing for not as long as yours, but a decent amount of time. And I've worked in enterprise. I've had a chance to work with digital transformation colleagues. And I'm sorry if, you know, it sounds controversial, but sometimes they lead from behind. I don't want to call it behind the scenes. There's a bit of a taskmaster mindset when it comes to digital transformation. You know, oh, you go do that. Oh, here's a deck. You go do that. You know, they, they are not really as hands-on when it comes to moving that transformation forward, you know, based on the different steps that are broken down in your book. But what I've seen for you is that you are really, really technical. You know the details, basically. So, and now we are in a world where a lot of young professionals are scrum masters or project managers or business analysts and all these other digital transformation or technical innovation career paths. And I almost feel like people like you need to be able to advise people like that on why it's important to sometimes, or most times, roll your sleeves, you know, when you are doing this job. So what would be your advice for that going forward? Because I love that about you. It's probably made you stand out too. Thank you. I think as anyone advances in their career, most of us start out as doers. And whether you're a programmer or a designer or business analyst or whatever, and as you grow in your career, you start to have people report to you and you become more and more of a manager. And eventually you start to have managers report to you and now you're an executive and you have larger and larger teams. And the reality is that's how you earn more money. That's how you become more valuable is to be able to lead teams. One of the challenges Actually, there's, I think, two challenges with that model. The first challenge is, can you really lead people well if you don't understand what it is that they are doing? I think 50 years ago or whatever, you know, if you were an accountant and the next thing you had, you were a manager of five accountants and eventually you were an executive with 50 accountants under you, how much time passed between when you were an accountant doing the work to become an executive, even if it was 20 years? How much did accounting change in those 20 years? So if you have reasonable memory, you still understand what the accountants are doing because you used to do that job 20 years ago. So you have the benefit of that. But the problem with the space that we're in is that it changes so fast that if you're a digital marketer and you're now, let's say, an executive, but you were a hands-on digital marketer 20 years from now, does that mean you understand what your teams have to do on a day-in and day-out basis? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Because the technology has changed, the marketing landscape has changed, so much has changed, that knowledge isn't very useful. And so I think in fast-moving spaces like ours, people who are going to be successful at the top, if you will, they need some percentage of their time to be spent continuing to be immersed in doing the work. Otherwise, you become disconnected from it. And so I think that I don't know another way other than making sure that you aren't spending just all your time managing, but some of your time doing. Now, having said that, I said there were two problems with this model. And the other problem with it is most people, at least my goal for everybody, is that they get into a career that they love. And whatever it may be, it's architecture or it's opening a restaurant or it's photography or it's accounting. Amazingly, some people love accounting, not me, but there are some people for whom that is like a dream job. So hopefully everybody has a job like that. I know in the real world, probably not true. But let's say you do have a job you love. And what that means is as you move through your career, you spend less and less time doing the job you love and more and more time coaching and leading other people who are doing the job you love. And that can be a real downer. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you want to make more money and you want to grow in your career, you almost have no choice. 
I think that's the other problem, which is what I love to do. I love leading teams. Don't get me wrong. I love helping other people. But what I really love the most is solving problems, is coming up with digital strategy, is doing customer research, is being there doing the work. So if I didn't spend at least some of my time doing that, I also don't think I'd be completely happy in my job. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I know a lot of creative people, for example, who if they are just art directing other people's designs and not doing any more work themselves, literally sitting at their computer in Photoshop or what have you, somehow they're disconnected from the reason they got into the job in the first place. So I think having some percentage of hands-on solves both of those problems. It lets you manage people and understand what they're doing. And hopefully it gives you enough of that joy that you get from actually doing the work that even if other part of your time is a little bit more disconnected because you're managing people, it's okay because you have a balance. And I like that. Again, the pursuit of happiness is being hands-on to an extent. So <laughs> well said. When we look at the episode here, in order to become mature in terms of digital maturities, marketers need to improve customer experiences. They need to improve own experiences and they need to communicate much better with customers. So could you tell us what you think is a great model for optimizing whether it's digital or marketing experiences from a nascent level to the most optimizable in-moment level possible where you're actually delivering real business outcome? Is there a path to that when it comes to digital experiences? Yeah, for sure there is. And of course, my book is meant to be a blueprint. 400 pages of explaining in detail, very concrete path. So I obviously can't go through all that here, but I think the starting point of it is to stop and say, well, wait a minute, what do we mean by experience anyway? And why is experience important? And what I would say, first of all, is what do we mean by experience? What we really mean is emotion, because that's the end product of experience. As I go through, let's say I go to a grocery store and I'm shopping for things, you could argue that there's two parts to what occurs. There's task completion and then there's experience. And these two things do intertwine because, for example, if I'm unable to complete my task, I probably don't have a very good experience. But it's also possible for two people to go to two different grocery stores and buy the exact same things and walk out and one have had a fantastic experience and they can't wait to go back to that store because they engaged and they felt a sense of humanity and the person at the bakery engaged with them and the store was easy to navigate and they gave free samples of food and the bathrooms were clean and the lines were short and they're like, wow, I love this place. And someone else can walk away from the same exact items at a different store and say, this place was horrible. I waited forever. I couldn't find anything. The place is gross and disgusting and I never want to go back there. And one of the things I've learned a lot over the years from Tony Robbins, who's, of course, a big life coach and, among other things, a, a mastermind and thought leader on human psychology. And one of the things that he says is the quality of your life is the quality of your emotions. After all, if we're happy all the time, then what difference does it make what kind of car we drive or what job? That's it. And if we're miserable, likewise, what difference does it make if we're flying in first class on Delta Airlines to a beautiful vacation destination, we're miserable. That's all that really matters. And I think it's the same is true when people engage with your brand. And so one of the things that we do in terms of the step-by-step -step is we do customer journey mapping of the current experience the customers are having through research, such as ethnography. And of course, we map what happens. Oh, customers come in, they can't find a shopping cart, they are confused about which items are in which aisles. But they love the low prices, they're super happy about the produce is really fresh, whatever it is, right? But we're also mapping emotions. Each step of, let's use this, continue to use this example of a grocery shopping experience, but of course it can apply to anything, financial services, media, it doesn't matter. The same basic principle is, what are the steps that people go through? And then what are the emotions at each step? And, and what's fascinating to me is, a lot of people would think that grocery shopping doesn't especially sound like an emotional activity. It's not like going to your daughter's wedding or something. Very few people are crying or jumping up and down for joy in a grocery store. But there are actually a lot of different emotions that people experience during most, let's say, commercial experiences from being excited, happy, confused, frustrated, disappointed, annoyed, appreciative, 
grateful. If you map out all the emotions that someone experiences during a 30-minute trip to the grocery store, you'll be quite amazed. And I encourage you to do it. Follow people through the grocery store. Don't get arrested. This is the type of research that we do. And really notice and pay attention to their faces. They pick up a product off the shelf. They go, oh, this looks good. Then they look at the label and go, 300 calories. Ooh, I'll put it back. They've just gone through a little emotional journey there. And so when we talk about creating a better experience, a lot of what we're doing is trying to architect the experience so that we maximize the positive emotions. Because when you walk away having a great experience, that's what makes you want to come back versus all those negative emotions, you know? And one example I always like to think about is one of our first clients at my company was Universal Studios theme parks. And one of the things you see there is lines. One of the biggest challenges of going to theme parks is lines. How long are you going to wait in line? And theme parks, including Universal, work very hard to make your experience in line as positive as possible. They can't always avoid the line. They could if they only let a thousand people into the theme park, but then they lose a ton of money, right? So they, they accept a degradation of your experience because they want to maximize their profit up to a certain point. But then they go, how can we make this experience the best possible? And if you've ever been to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, that as you go through the lines, every little section of the line, there's animated things and videos playing and all kinds of stuff to keep you interested and entertained until you get to the actual ride. And I think that's a good example of a company that's really focused on how you optimize experience versus a company that just says, well, you have to stand in line. What are you going to do? That's not my fault. You got to have a line. Or another one of the clients that we work with a lot now is the Avis Budget Group, people renting cars. So there, our focus has heavily been on how can you avoid the line? What are all the reasons why people, when they arrive at a rental car location, have to wait in line? And how do we go through all those reasons and say, wait a minute, why can't you just go straight to your car? I mean, some people have been doing that for years. That's not a new idea. But if it's only 20% of the people, what about the other 80%? Why do they have to wait in line? Because they have to sign something, because they have to give a credit card or show a driver's license or make a decision. And how many of those things can we find a way to use digital to do in advance? So when you get off the plane and you get to the lot and you just want to get out of there, you don't have to wait in line. But in the end, what's the outcome we're looking for? Again, it's that more positive emotional experience. You know, in summary, I think that's where you start is make sure that this idea of experience isn't abstract. Let's get really concrete about what it is and recognize that it really is emotion, and that emotion is perhaps the most, I talk about this at length in my book, the most important aspect of a successful business. If you're delighting your customers and making them love you, you're probably running a great business. And if you're annoying and pissing off your customers, or making them frustrated, or angry, or sad, or disappointed, or what have you, then the only way you're running a good business is if you're a monopoly, like the phone company, or the cable company, or somebody where the customer has no choice and they've got to suffer because there's nowhere else to go. But if you think about how much people hate the cable company historically, at least in the US, when DirecTV came out, and this was decades ago, and said, hey, here's an alternative. We put a satellite dish on your roof. People said, I am happy to sign up for only one reason. Not because DirecTV sounds so great. Because I hate the cable company. I just want to kick them in the shins. I just want to get rid of them. And if you can help me do that, then I'm signing up. And that for a big, was a huge part of DirecTV's success. Just get back at the company you hate. Obviously, that's not a very good business model. Be the opposite. Be the company that no one wants to leave. So that if you're an Apple customer and you love Apple, even if an Android comes out with a phone, with a camera, with a higher resolution on the latest Samsung device or some other thing that's arguably better, you're like, no, I love Apple. I'm not leaving Apple. Or it would take an enormous amount to get you to leave, not just small incremental you know, improvement. So anyway, that's, I think, where you start is the mindset you have around experience. Yeah, I love how you broke it down. I love the fact that at the end of the day, you need to get sufficient data, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, and using that to figure out what Harvard calls it the job to be done in terms of improving this customer experience, say digitally, for example, and then you're doing applying ways to solve that problem. If it's not near 100%, like in the case of the theme parks, you could reduce it by a wide margin. And I like the fact that you said doing that allows you to be relevant. I know there are many aspects of your book that talks about you losing market share or competitive advantage or even being irrelevant altogether if you do not pay attention to your digital experiences. And marketers 
is one of the least things that they pay attention to these days. They just want to run ads. They want to run campaigns. They want to send emails. They want to do all this stuff without thinking about how we can optimize the client experience. Marketers are not involved in the product development process. Marketers don't relate with sales so that sales can feed them with customer needs or future customer needs or past customer needs for them to use in their own optimization. There are so many things going on right now. And I think what Howard is saying is that if you do not pay attention to these things, which equates to a great emotional experience for the customer, B2B, B2C, then irrelevance is going to be knocking at your door very soon. And I would like us to discuss something else regarding this. And it's about the mindset. I think that was what you ended with there. And when it comes to building or even changing digital transformative marketing experiences, I know it's not easy, especially at the enterprise level. I've had the privilege of working with two fang companies for podcast marketing. And we did propose to them two mock-ups to improve their podcast landing page. One company did this quicker and the other one has been stalling for months. In fact, it's been almost a year right now. So how do you influence what I might call leadership alignment internally to move digital transformation forward? How do you do that? Let me go back to something you said earlier about marketers seem to just want to run ads. Uh, of course, I know lots of different types of marketers, and I, I agree that there's those that look at it that way. And then I know others that have a much different viewpoint. So I think it's diverse, but I agree with you that there's people like that have that mindset. And there are people like that have, that's their charter. They've been hired and told marketing's job is to drive traffic into the store. And don't you worry about the rest. That's what we want you to do. So that even if you're in a job like that and you say, but what about the experience? Someone says, that's not your job. That's store operations job. They'll worry about that. You just run the ads. And I think the companies that think that way, that's are suboptimizing themselves and are the ones that risk irrelevance, as I talk about in my book, because you have to be able to deliver a great experience end to end. Like I mentioned earlier about doing things like journey maps, we need to think about the holistic customer experience. Now, don't get me wrong. On any given day, everyone's got to have an assignment. This person's working on an ad. This person's making sure the store is easy to find and doing the signage in the store. This person's working on merchandise. Of course, not everybody can work on everything all the time. That's not an organized way to approach getting things done. But when you think about the strategy that everyone's trying to execute, it has to be one unified, as they say, omni-channel journey. Because if you're not, your competitors are, right? You know, if you're a retailer, that's what Amazon's delivering. So if you're not delivering that, then you're not delivering a competitive experience. You're not telegraphing to today's digital customer that you understand their needs. And that's generally a path towards irrelevance. People might still sometimes buy something from you, but that's not a strategy that's not a recipe for growth. That's a recipe for shrinkage. And I think that we have to think about what is marketing anyway? One of the things I notice is that the responsibilities of the marketing department vary dramatically from company to company. It's almost random. There are some companies in which marketing is responsible, for example, for the whole, let's say there's an e-commerce site, for the whole e-commerce experience. That's considered part of marketing all the way through to you take the order. And then there are other companies where marketing is only in charge of running ads. In some companies, marketing is responsible for customer research and making sure that we have the full perspective of the customer and feeding that information back into product. And in others, marketing is told, don't you worry about that. That's the research team or something like that. So the definition of what is marketing is very fuzzy and not just around the edges. Huge important areas are sometimes inside or outside of marketing. So I would argue that we don't even know really what marketing is anymore. And arguably, it's just a label anyway. So what difference does it make? What is marketing? What really matters is what has to get done. And I think one of the things that has happened over the last couple of decades is that the effectiveness of any kind of advertising has been on continuous decline. Why? Number one, People are barraged with more and more ads, which means that their brains become more and more expert at tuning them out. Banner blindness on websites, but that goes to every TiVo or DVRs to skip through the commercials on your TV, ignoring billboards when you pass them. It's just when you're so inundated with marketing messages, you tend to chew them out. And of course, then they try to shout louder and louder, and it's just a vicious cycle. That's reason number one. And then reason number two is that people don't believe them anyway. Consumers have become more and more cynical. And 
if whatever you say about yourself as a brand, whether it's with a slogan or a tagline or a jingle or whatever, most people are just going to assume you're lying. It's just marketing BS, frankly. And so you can do whatever you like, but recognize that any message that you tell people about yourself is at best a claim that will be met with skepticism. And the only way to really make it meaningful is if you can really prove that claim is true. And how do you do that? If people don't believe advertising, and there's plenty of studies, by the way, that back this up, then what is it that they believe? There's two things that people do believe. The first is their own experience. If I went into a Chevy dealership and had a fantastic experience, and someone tells me Chevy has fantastic experience, I'm going to say, yeah, you're right. I believe that because I experienced it myself. And that, by the way, means, of course, your existing customers, you want to give them a great experience because that's what they're going to believe. If you went to that store, that grocery store, like we talked about earlier, it had a terrible experience. And then you see a billboard that says the friendliest, easiest to shop store in the world, you're just going to laugh, right? That's obviously a lie. It's just marketing. But you do believe your own experience. And what's the second thing people believe? Reviews, word of mouth or online reviews. And what is that really? That's just other people's experiences. That's other people reporting their experiences. So what it really means is that the two things that people believe are really stemming from the same thing, which is what is the quality of the actual experience you're delivering? If it's great, then your customers will come back. And the people you want to attract as new customers will hear about it one way or another. And if it's bad, then no matter what you put in your ad, you can tell people all day long, fly the friendly skies. But if people are complaining online about how nasty your flight attendants are, then, you know, and they're showing videos of people being dragged off your planes by security guards happened to United Airlines recently. And by the way, I like United Airlines. It's just an example because it's a well-known slogan. But then your ads are not going to win. So anyway, so that's why I think that if marketing is just ads, then the last thing marketers want is less money for ads and more money for experience. Because they're going to say, well, then my marketing department is shrinking. That's bad for me. But when we expand and just push aside for a minute, things like a label like marketing and say, let's just look at, there's a part of the experience that's about telling people things. And it's a lot to do with advertising and PR and other things. And then there's a part of experience that's about showing people actually giving them the experience. That's the part that's the most influential. And so I think that mindset should lead companies to say, I'm not saying don't advertise, but accept that if you have a bad experience, that's the more important place to invest. And if you don't really know, based on data, the quality of the experience you're delivering today, you just hope it's a good experience, but you're not really measuring it, you're probably wrong. <laughs> And you need to measure it so you can understand what parts are great, what parts are bad. So you can really then determine how much should I be investing in advertising or other things like that? And how much should I just be investing in making something better so my customers have a better experience? Yeah. And I completely agree with you on that. It's not easy work. We call ourselves the chief magic officers, but uh, it's not magic. It's marketing. I like what you said about the omnichannel marketing experience and how you need to optimize that to mature if we're connecting that to what we are saying here. And of course, a key to that is technology. Having to be able to connect through the omni-channel space and connecting at a personal customer level requires a lot of the technology, AI, and all these other tools out there. My question is, based on your experience, feel free to shed some light on 2023. It's been an explosive year for technology. How have you seen businesses, those who do it, apply the use of tech in improving digital experiences so that marketers can let the brand sell itself, basically? Yeah, so many ways. Obviously, one of the topics that's very hot this year is AI and chat GPT. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is, despite the fact that there are some challenges with it, that using AI has the potential to make it easier for us to deliver better and better experiences. I'll give you one simple example, the ability to take copy that you're creating and tailor it more to the specific audience that is consuming it, whether it's 
based on their age or based on their level of technical knowledge or expertise or based on cultural considerations or any one of a number of different factors. So that if you have, let's say, a product description of a flashlight, let's say, and says, oh, this flashlight is a thousand lumens and it has a 10 hour battery life and it's made of this titanium and you can drop it and it won't break. And it's gotten great reviews from Consumer Reports. Okay. But how do you tell that story to a 20-year-old college student compared to how do you sell that flashlight to an 80-year-old retiree compared to someone in the military, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? You could already start to think about, wow, I'd probably tell that story in a different way. But if you have 10,000 SKUs and 50 different segments, how are you going to write all that copy? It just becomes impractical from a cost perspective. And furthermore, we know from studies that men and women, generally speaking, respond to different types of copy. Now, of course, there's always exceptions, but if you're trying to drive your sales forward based on statistics and based on numbers, then you do that the data tells you, even though sometimes there might be an outlier. So if you imagine rewriting all your copy differently for men versus women, you should be able to make a better experience and improve conversion, not in a way that the reader necessarily notices, but in a way that makes them feel emotionally more understood and more connected to what you're saying. So the potential of that is just enormous. And it could go to other things as well, design, color, other things like that. And so I think the idea that we can start to personalize people's experiences in much, much more rich and sophisticated ways through AI is an enormous opportunity. That makes a lot of sense. Right now, I'd like to get your wisdom on some of the best practices. A lot of great stuff has been shared with regards to how we need to become mature. And I think anyone listening now, including myself, is ready to become mature. Imagine a toddler that wants to become an adult overnight. That is really the experience right now. And the truth is that, like you said, different marketers with different mindsets. And my hope is that marketers are ready not to fail at maximizing their brand's digital maturity. And first of all, have you ever come across a brand that has done this right? And if so, what are some of the things they did that make them a success when it comes to driving great digital transformations and then winning digital customers? Absolutely. There are a lot of brands that have done a fantastic job. And actually, it's very heartwarming to me because if you go back maybe 10 years in this business, 10, 12 years, and looked around, all the real big digital success stories were all what you would call a pure play, you know, a company that was built from the ground up to be digital, whether that's Amazon or Google or Facebook or Airbnb or Netflix or what have you. And that's not mainly who I work with as a consultant. And we work with big, let's call them traditional brands, NBC, JPMorgan Chase, Airbus, companies that have been around a lot longer than this digital world. And there was a time when it almost seemed like, will these companies ever be able to make the transition? Or will all of today's companies have to die out like the dinosaurs to be replaced with a whole new breed of companies that were built digitally from the ground up? That was a kind of a, an anxiety, if you will, of companies years ago. But if you look at it today, we see a healthy mix of companies that you might call digital leaders that include, of course, your classic pure play companies like the ones I mentioned along with companies that were around long before digital, those that we might call legacy companies, so to speak. For example, most people know that Amazon is the number one largest e-commerce retailer in the United States. Do you know who the second largest e-commerce player in the United States is? Walmart. Walmart is number two. Let me give you another one. Most people probably would guess Apple is the number one most popular, most widely used digital currency in the United States through Apple Pay. Number two, Starbucks. Here are some brands that have not only created a great experience, but are winning by every normal business measure, which is to say sales, profit, growth, stock price valuation, you know, if you look at the things that Starbucks has done, and actually I published an article not too long about Starbucks, from being a leader in taking mobile orders and allowing you to just arrive at Starbucks and pick up your drink instead of waiting in line and then waiting for your drink to be prepared, 
And by the way, also saving you from the hassle of one of the things Starbucks always prided itself in was that you could customize your coffee. I want two pumps of caramel. I want half soy milk, half this with this kind of foam on top, this kind of sprinkles, blah, blah, blah. But every time you went back, you had to explain all that to somebody. And what's the chances that they might have gotten something wrong if you've just described this extremely complicated order? I mean, those people are pretty sharp at Starbucks, I have to say. But nevertheless, human nature, right? You're not going to get every complex order right. But once it's in the app, all you have to do is say, I want my usual drink. And you don't have to go back. And so, so many ways in which the Starbucks experience has been improved by technology. And by the way, now many other quick service restaurants have followed suit. So now we see companies like Panera. Also, I think I saw a statistic recently that well over 50% of all Panera Bread's orders are coming in through digital channels. I think Starbucks is high up there too. And by the way, Starbucks uses digital in all kinds of ways that are behind the scenes as well to optimize their supply chain, to make sure that the right products are in the right places at the right times and employees shift scheduling to make a better employee experience and all kinds of things. So if you think about Domino's fundamental value proposition, the major brand characteristic that we think of them, it's not the best pizza in the world. <laughs> it's speed, right? 30 minutes or less of your money back, right? Now, of course, I think they stopped doing that because they started causing car accidents because their drivers were insisted on getting it to you in 30 minutes. But that was always, you're going to get your pizza within 30 minutes. But what they had never really done before they became digitally masterful is realize that speed of delivery is one thing, but what about speed of ordering? How long does it take you to call up and wait to talk to somebody and tell them you want a half pepperoni, half mushroom pizza and add this and add that? And it's the same thing. Did they get the order right? And of course, they created a great app where you can configure and, and just like Starbucks, remember what you like and redo it. But then they said, how can we make this even faster? How can we make ordering as fast as possible? So they have another app, Domino's does, where if you just open the app on your phone, there's like a 10 second countdown clock that starts. And if you just open the app and let the countdown clock go and don't hit stop, it just submits your favorite order to Domino's to be delivered to your house using your standard form of payment. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is tap to open the app. And you can get the same result if you text Domino's from your phone, the pizza emoji. That's it. One single character. This is a company that has obsessed about how to make it as easy as humanly possible to order that pizza. And then you combine that with their historical strength at making sure you get that pizza quickly. This is a company that's really thinking about experience. Again, you know, there's the food itself, but then there's what's your experience, how easy is it to order? And then that has had a huge impact on their sales. So I could go on and on. I'll mention one more, but there's so many. Another company, actually a whole industry, that's really done an amazing job of being digitally effective is the logistics industry. If you look at Federal and you look at UPS, what were these companies, specifically let's talk about Federal Express. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, most of Federal Express's revenue came from documents. Someone would have a document and they would need to get it to someone else overnight their slogan used to be when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. And what were these things that needed to get there overnight? Usually they were documents. And I remember working in marketing back then, and I was FedExing stuff every day. I had layouts or it was just you know, agreements, contracts, whatever. It was just constant papers going back and forth. That's mostly what FedEx shipped. Email, of course, has destroyed that. The ability to, I don't need to FedEx my layout to anybody anymore, Right. But rather than decline with that decline in that application of their logistics capabilities, they recognized that e-commerce was going to mean a huge growth in the shipment of packages. And so they shifted hugely on focusing on how could they be a leading deliverer of packages. And a lot of that focused on who's FedEx's real customer is not the recipient, but is the shipper. And what they realize is that they're now going to have all these new companies like Amazon, but lots and lots of e-commerce companies that are going to be customers of theirs that are going to grow. And they focus on how can they be a great partner to them. And so there's all kinds of software and tools that normal recipients of packages don't see, but that are designed for the merchants, the shippers, to be able to ship as effectively as possible in the most cost-effective way possible, et cetera, et cetera. And so they really figured out how to use digital to create a great experience for e-commerce companies that were shipping packages 
And they saw huge growth in that business and they're more successful than ever. So anyway, I'll stop there, but there's many more, but there's just a few profiles of companies that are traditional legacy companies that have just killed it in the digital world. Yeah, I like, first of all, Starbucks, I've seen some documentaries that says they are beginning to become a bank. And that makes sense where you said they are challenging orders in the payment side of things, even though originally it's coffee that they sell. Domino's Pizza, for example, I also heard something else. Because of the advent of AI, we've had many mentioned AI in their post-earning scores this year, 2023. And someone, there was a back and forth on CNBC about someone asking, what's Domino's Pizza doing with AI? It's all because of what Howard has said with regards to how they use technology to continue to deliver the job to be done for the customer in the most easiest and fastest way possible. These companies have mastered the share of life of these customers, and they are always there whenever they need it, just like the five-second app. And if you're listening right now, yes, you don't want to rush into everything you hear with technology, but if you are not integrating technology in a very smart way for your own situation, then you might just be left behind. And speaking of being left behind, what are some of the things that companies do wrong and then they ultimately fail? Have you seen some companies that just fail? Is it negligence? Is it, it could be anything. And I'll let you elaborate on that. And why did they fail? Yeah, look, at in the United States, we just had Bed Bath & Beyond, a huge, giant retailer declare bankruptcy. Before them, we saw companies from Toys R Us to Circuit City, Office Depot. I mean, you go on and on. There's all kinds of companies that have not made the leap, if you will, into the new digital world. And of course, every one of these failures has a whole story behind it. And it's not always just digital, but safe to say those companies that have become masterful at digital are not the companies that have wound up on the scrap heap. And so, yes, there's definitely companies that have failed. And I think that, again, everyone has its own story. So you wouldn't want to cast with one brush every single company. But I think that the biggest problem that I see, the biggest thing that holds companies back is resistance to change. It's not the technology. It's the people. And I tell a story in my book, early in my career, I was a digital strategy consultant for Blockbuster, who, of course, at one time had, I forget the number of stores, 10,000 or more stores all over the country. And they were the leader, needless to say, in not just videotapes and DVDs, but on-demand video. If you wanted to watch something other than what was showing on TV right now or cable, it was Blockbuster. And obviously, they blew it, right? <laughs> and they went from the leader of an industry to nothing at a time when the industry grew by orders of magnitude. The importance of on-demand video today is 10,000 times greater. It's not like, oh, we, you know, we sell ice for ice boxes and, oh, nobody needs ice anymore, so we go out of business. No, people want on-demand video more than ever. But, of course, the format changed. It went digital, and Blockbuster didn't follow that. And so I was there. <laughs> I was there. As a consultant working for Capgemini, or maybe it was Ernst Gemini, I think it was Capgemini, working on the vision, the digital strategy for Blockbuster at a time when they were still very near their peak. And I was working there. I was the outside consultant, my team and I, but I was working with super smart people at Blockbuster who totally got it. And they saw where the future was going. And they saw that Blockbuster needed to move to delivery of streaming video to the home. That was the future of on-demand entertainment. And we worked together on a fantastic strategy. And the only reason I say it's fantastic is not because I did it, but because it looked like the successful companies today look in many ways, right? It was the strategy that actually ultimately succeeded. It's just Blockbuster didn't do it. And so why not, right? Why were they sitting there with the strategy? Now, of course, it's easy to say in retrospect that it was the successful strategy. But the basic reason was because organizational resistance to change. Yes, there were people there, even very senior people, who had hired my company and I and were having us develop the strategy, but those people were not the CEO. They couldn't 100% do it themselves. And when they brought forth a vision to move more to on-demand streaming and things like that, the resistance from the other parts of the organization was very significant. I'll give you another Tony Robbins quote, which is, he says, the single most powerful force in the human personality is the need to be consistent with how we view ourselves, with who we think we are. 
And so I remember sitting in meetings at Blockbuster and people would say, we're not a tech company. Why are we doing this? We're a retailer. That's our business. We're in the retail business. We shouldn't be moving into trying to be a tech company. Well, yeah, that's another argument, right? This has worked for 20 years. Why shouldn't it, right? Absolutely. I'll tell you another story, which I write about in the book, which is I remember sitting in a meeting and someone said to me, you don't understand our business. And I said, we don't make that much money off renting DVDs because the studios take a lot of the money. We make a small margin on the DVDs. What we really make money on is the candy. Back then, you'd go into the video store, you'd rent some DVDs, but then you'd grab one of those giant boxes of M&Ms and maybe one of those buckets of microwave popcorn. And the margin on those was enormous. You might rent a DVD for $5 and Blockbuster makes a dollar, but you'd buy a box of M&Ms for $5 and Blockbuster makes $4.85. It was just enormously marked up. He said, if we move to your model, quote, you can't stream candy, which is true. You can't argue with that, right? But somehow Netflix, despite never streaming one single M&M or even selling one single M&M, you know, has made a pretty successful business out of it. But some people will just get it in their minds. And by the way, any new idea has flaws, right? There were concerns then about security and bandwidth and do people have enough bandwidth to their home? And those were all valid concerns. You can always find a reason to make a justification for not transforming. But if you let those reasons drive your decision-making, the risk is you'll wind up like Blockbuster. And so I think in the end, and I talk about various reasons why transformations fail in the book, but that's, I think, the number one is how do you get the organization really aligned around transformation? Because it's scary, because it's costly, because it's risky, it's perfectly reasonable for people to say, gee, uh, do we really have to do this? This sounds disruptive, and it is. But the alternative is even more disruptive, which is becoming irrelevant. So I understand why people naturally feel resistance. And so part of the job of a leader is to inspire people to overcome their fears and overcome their doubts and go and do what's really needed. And that kind of leadership is necessary for any company going through transformation. Leadership in transformational times is much harder than leadership in other times when you're just coming up with a new ad campaign or launching a new improved version of your product and whatnot. And a lot of leaders aren't successful. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's retrospect, but having to speak to someone involved in the Netflix story, it's amazing. This is digital transformation and this happened. And yeah, you're probably not the only party involved in trying to convince them. And I should add, it wasn't my proudest moment. It was really one of the great failures in my career, right? After all, I was hired to help them successfully move into the digital world and I failed. Right now, I didn't fail alone. I was working with other people and other people from my company were leading it and obviously the people at Blockbuster. But together, we failed to persuade and inspire this organization to do what needed to be done. That's uh, a sad, no career is all successes or at least maybe some, but not mine. But often we learn more from our failures. There's a great quote that I love from Bill Gates from years ago as he said, success is a lousy teacher. And I think that's true. (laughs) And so I learned a lot from that experience at Blockbuster, even though obviously it was a big disappointment. No, you're right. The lessons are always learned. And what we are all hearing right now is probably the most important digital transformation lesson, maybe in the history of capitalism or in the history of mankind. So I'm glad that you're able to share that. And definitely it's a case for companies who need to work on their mindset. And I'm, I, I may not have enough time to speak about how sometimes respectfully, I'm a computer science major, IT people sometimes bottleneck some of these initiatives because they don't like the inconvenience of their obsolete portals. But please, whether you're a marketer or not, as long as you're involved in a marketing or a digital transformation project where user experiences need to be improved to deliver commercial value, then we need to do it. It's all Howard said. There's a bit of an ego side of things there. You know, you protect your stuff. But when it comes to businesses, whether it's B2B, B2C, mid-sized startup or enterprise, it's bigger than you. And you need to do whatever it takes to trust the data that never lies for most of the time and contribute to the growth so that that maturity can be attained. And speaking of data here, I've always wanted to ask you this question. 
sometimes some of the ways that we marketers lie to ourselves when it comes to conversion rate optimization. But I worry and I still worry about attribution. You said something in your book in terms of correlation not being the same thing as implication. I may not get the, the exact words right now. Causation, yeah. And I would like you to maybe give us some notes or advice on how to properly approach marketing intelligence, how to approach marketing insights, how to approach insights when it comes to digital experiences so that we can make the right decisions or the most accurate decisions possible. Why do people think about this fallacy and why do they still follow it and what should we do going forward? Sure, I'm happy to. I just want to say one thing about the last thing you said before that about IT people and the the need for them to see the bigger picture and to see what's bigger than themselves. You're right. That's what we need to be successful. And at the same time, it's really important that leaders are able to empathize with the people that they're leading and to recognize that we can say that, but the truth is that to an individual person, on one level, there's nothing bigger than themselves and their family, right? And so if we say to somebody who is a 20-year veteran of the Cobalt programming language and knows the company's mainframe inside and out, and we say, we need this person's help for the bigger, greater good to migrate off this technology to some new technology, which he or she does not know, but which every college graduate coming out of technical school has spent four years studying. It's not hard for that person to say, wait a minute, once this is done, why will you need me? What is my career? Am I at age 50 or whatever going to learn this new stuff that these kids have all learned? And even if I do, am I going to be worth what I'm being paid today? This doesn't sound like it's good for me. And by the way, I've got two kids in college right now. I want to plan for my retirement. And so just empathize and recognize that rightly so, it's not always ego. Sometimes it's practicality and it's looking out for yourself. And so if you want to drive change, you have to think about who is this really good for and who is it bad for? Because most changes are bad for somebody. If the sky clouds over and it starts to rain, that's great for the grass. It's bad for the people who want to have a picnic, you know? So whatever transformation you're looking to drive, somebody's the grass and somebody's the picnicker. And you, the person who's trying to drive the transformation, you're probably the grass because you're probably not driving a transformation that's going to hurt yourself, at least not usually. But if you need everybody to participate, you need to think about what am I going to do to try to make this good for everybody or recognize that there's some people who are probably not going to get on board and figure out a plan to make your transformation successful without them because people are only going to work. They're not going to do a lot that's against their own interests. So I just wanted to respond on that point. Regarding correlation and causation, here's what I'd say. First of all, the human mind has a bug in it. And the bug is this exact thing you're talking about, right? Thousands of years ago, there's a native tribe somewhere would have, I don't know, you know, somebody would do something and then it would rain. And they would say, we figured out how to make it rain. Every time you pound the drum or whatever else, it rains, right? And if it happened twice, somehow, forget it. Then for a hundred years, they're going to remember, pound the drum and make it rain. Even though 10 other times you pounded the drum, it didn't rain, right? Nothing to do with each other. So there's a natural connection that we make. Because it's difficult in life to tell what is causation. It's just easier to see correlation. This happened and then that happened. So just know that that's a natural, and, and by the way, very often, correlation is causation, right? I touch a hot stove, my finger gets burned. Was it caused by the stove? Arguably, the only data I have is correlation, right? I touch the stove, my finger got burned, correlation. Do I have actual proof of causation? Actually, no. So that's why our brains make that assumption because it's very hard to prove causation. Okay, so what to do? There's two things to look at to try to figure out the correlation causation issue. One is repeatability, right? As in my rain example, how often do A and B happen together? Because if the answer is infrequently, but occasionally, then it's less likely, right? But even when they happen together, 
it still doesn't prove causation. For example, one thing I'll hear all the time is, let's say the app, a company's app. They'll say, well, only 1% of our customers download the app. But the people who download the app buy more than anybody else. Okay. And you look at the data and you say, 99% of the time, someone who downloads the app buys more than someone who doesn't download the app. But here's the question. So that's recurring regularly. That's not my like my rain example. But is that because the app somehow gets you to buy more? Or is it because people who want to buy more get more value from the app and it's more worth downloading the app? It's highly likely, and by the way, there could be some of both, right? But it's highly likely that the second is at least a chunk of those people. And then the question, is it 10%? Is it 99%? And then that's where you're like, the data doesn't tell us. So that goes to point two. Point two is, and don't worry, it's two of two, which is that data very often tells us what, but not why. Of everybody who gets to the final stage of your checkout process on your website, 30% never complete. Okay, that's what the data tells you. 70% finish the transaction, 30% get all the way to the end. They fill out their credit card, everything, and then they don't buy the thing. So what should we do about it? The answer is, I haven't a clue because I don't know why they're doing that. The data doesn't tell me why. And if I don't know why, I don't know what to do. And so the answer typically is combining qualitative research with quantitative research. While the data doesn't tell me, if I sit with 50 people or 100 people as they go through the shopping process and ask them to talk aloud and try to understand each step of the way. Why did you put that in your cart? And why did you search for that promo code? And why did you decide not to buy that product? You just understand their process, not to ask them separate from the activity in an interview, but to actually let them go through the process and try to understand each step of the way what their thinking is. If I do that with 100 people, then presumably 30 of them are not going to wind up buying. And those 30, I can say, you're not going to check out. Why not? When I saw the final price added up, it was more than I thought it was going to be. Or that last page requires me to check a box saying I agree to the privacy policy and I don't think I should have to agree to that in order to check out. Or whatever, right? And now we're in a position to start to understand why. And now we can start to come up with some hypotheses about how to fix it. And now we can start to A-B test those hypotheses and hopefully figure out how to get that conversion up. And now because of the quantitative indicated there was an issue of some sort, but the qualitative is what helped us understand what the actual correlation was. Yeah. I love this. My initial mindset was that you might be able to find a clue in your strategy because if you've had a strategy prior and something happens, there might be a clue as to why that thing happens or that correlation in there. But what you've shared about repeatability and proofing with qualitative data is something that is incredibly useful. And I'm grateful for that because personally, that's something that I've just known right now. And I hope those listening are probably very excited about that as well. And yeah, you know, with the IT thing and with practicality in terms of stakeholder engagement, it's something I often practice every day. You have to try to empathize because people just love comfort zones. Mm -hmm. No matter how much you speak about this, people just love comfort zone for whatever reason. And empathy as a big marketing or business leader is important and how you use that in an influence is important. And I will also say that sometimes you have no choice. You just have to do it without them, which is what Howard also said as well. So it's important to look at some of those things when you are addressing change management. And this affects marketing a lot. This affects digital experiences a lot. It affects almost anything that you need to progressively change. So it's important to do that. Howard, you've been Amazing. I can pick many things that you've said, but I think the strongest thing, because I am a lover of history a lot. I love technology history, marketing history, being able to talk to someone that was there when Blockbuster made the mistake they did. With respect to Blockbuster, we've had many other failures as well. It's incredible. I think most people listening, if not all, have learned a thing or two like myself and take things forward. So where can our enterprise marketers hire you? if they need help winning digital customers? Sure. My consulting firm is called From, the Digital Transformation Agency. They can find us on, you know, on the web, of course, at from.digital. 
Also, I encourage people to check out my book, as you mentioned earlier, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. You can find that on Amazon or iBooks or there you go, anywhere you buy books. There's also a website for the book. If you go to winningdigitalcustomers.com, you can actually download the first chapter for free. See if you want to invest in buying it. I hope you do. Absolutely. That's all for today, guys. Thank you for listening. Please see more episodes at dotslovesmarketing.com and subscribe to the Marketing Leadership Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Till next episode, connect the dots. Thank you for listening to the Marketing Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. There will be links to any resources mentioned in today's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. If you're a business needing content promotion, podcast campaign production, or are looking to build effective B2B marketing strategies, Dots is here to offer you ultimate marketing leadership and expertise. Find out more at www.dotslovesmarketing.com.